way that we've experienced your guiding. So we're turning this evening um, to the Old Testament to think about Christ in the Old Testament and tonight thinking from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7 we'll see that God makes a covenant with David. No problem at all. Excellent, thank you very much. Is that better now? Everybody hear me loud and clear? Excellent. Excellent. Central to the whole idea of the biblical storyline, the biblical narrative, is the idea of God's covenants that he makes with his people. The idea of the covenant is really, really important. And it's especially important because it's not an idea that you get in pagan religions. So if you look at ancient Near Eastern religions, uh, you don't find this idea of God making a covenant with people. The idea of a covenant was very common in the ancient Near East, but the idea that God would come and make a covenant with people, that was just completely unheard of. The idea in the pagan religions was that you had to do your best for God. You had to, you know, build God temples. You had to, you know, do lots of good works. You had to do your absolute best to please the God. Um, But in the Bible, we see the exact opposite of that because actually what we see is that God himself comes down to meet sinful human beings and he makes these covenants with them to pledge himself to them that he's going to be absolutely loyal to them in protecting them and providing for them. And then God's covenant promises are the things that then form the backbone for the Bible itself. Everything hangs together on these covenants, these promises that God actually has made. And this then culminates in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who fulfills all of God's covenant promises and brings them to fruition. Everything that God promised in the past comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We began the series then by thinking about Genesis 3.15, and it's kind of like the, the seed where all that begins, where, where God promises that there's going, to become, there's going to come a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That the serpent then is the one who brought all the misery and sin into the world, and then God promises that he is going to deal a decisive death blow to this wicked serpent and undo the effects of the fall that have been brought into the world. Then last time we thought about how then that continues through to Abraham. And God makes this covenant promise to Abraham that it is through his seed, through his descendant, that this promised one is going to come. And this one is going to undo the effects of the fall by bringing blessing to all the nations of the world. And so God is progressively working out these covenant promises, tracing them down through history, explaining exactly what he's going to do. And then, of course, after Abraham, the promise then comes to Jacob comes to Isaac and then it comes to Jacob and then comes to Judah and so on and so forth. But the next major stepping stone after Abraham is the promise that, that, that is then given to David. And it's important to see that as we think about these, these promises that God makes, they're not different promises. It's not like God is saying, oh, here's a promise for you and here's a promise for you and here's a promise for you and there's lots of like, different promises floating about in the Bible. It's one continuous line 
that God begins in seed form with the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve that there'd be a seed of the woman that would crush the serpent head that then gets progressively worked out that's got a common thread running through them. And so what we're going to see tonight in this promise made to David is that this stands in the line of the promises that were made to Adam and Abraham and so on. And then it just fills it out in greater detail exactly what it is that God is going to do, who it is that's going to come, that's going to fulfill all of God's purposes. And what I want to discover as we look at this promise made to David is that the fundamental feature of this promise is that God promises that one of David's descendants is going to be the king and his reign will last forever. And this is the defining feature of this promise that's being made. The idea, though, that there would be a king isn't new to this particular covenant. The idea is alluded to in many other passages earlier in the Old Testament. So Jacob, he prophesies, for example, at the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nation shall be his and so you see already in genesis this promise that there's going to be a king that's going to come with the ruler staff and he's going to rule all of the nations and then balaam you see that in numbers chapter 24 he prophesies their king will be greater than agag their kingdom will be exalted and so already we see that there's this idea sweeping through the old testament is going to be coming a king who is going to bring about God's purposes. But the full details of that don't really get fleshed out properly until we get to this promise, this covenant that's made with David. But before we think about it any further, let's have a read at this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, think about um, this covenant promise. Reading from the NIV, and God's word says, After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, 
and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. This is the word of the Lord. Like I mentioned at the start then, covenants are special in the Bible precisely because they're God's initiative. It's God's action in the affairs of men, whereby God himself comes and pledges himself to those who simply don't deserve it, who simply receive his grace and mercy. And this is really highlighted in the way that this covenant is brought about. David, you see, he's entered a phase of his reign where all of his enemies have largely settled down around him, and he's having relative peace and tranquility in his kingdom. And as he's resting in his palace one evening, he thinks to himself, well, here I am, sitting in my palace, enjoying the the luxury that's surrounding me, peace and security, and God is dwelling in a tent. Surely that's not right. Surely I need to be doing something for God, getting a, a proper house built for him. And so he calls the prophet Nathan to consult with him and says, well, I want to build a great house for God's name. I want to build him a temple so that he can be properly worshipped. And Nathan thinks that in principle, that's a good idea, that God is deserving of that honour. But that night, God himself comes and he speaks to the prophet Nathan. And essentially, he says to the prophet Nathan to go to David and say, look, why are you trying to build a house for me as if I needed a house made by human hands. I don't need that. Instead, let me do something for you, David. Let me build a house for you, David. And of course, it's a play on words, isn't it? In Hebrew, as in in English, the word house can refer to a physical building or it can refer to your household. Just like we refer to the House of Windsor uh, as the, the royal family itself. So so the word house can have different meanings. It can mean a physical building, or it can mean a family. It can mean descendants. And this then is what God does. He comes and he he has this play in words, and he says, look, I don't need a, a physical house, a temple made by you. What I want to do is I want to build you a house, David. I want to show my grace to you by giving you a family, a descendant who will last forever. And so what God is doing is he's showing that he's, he doesn't need stuff from us. He's, he's not a God who needs all of the things that we can provide for him. He's not that kind of God. Rather, God is a God of matchless condescension who is rich in everything that he needs. And he comes to us and he showers his grace and his mercy on us. And in this covenant, he comes to David and he pledges himself in covenant loyalty. And he says, 
I am going to fulfill promises for you. I pledge myself to you, David. And so what he does here is he, he specifically promises that David is going to have a descendant that's going to sit on David's throne and be king forever. But before we think about that, let's have a think about that idea of kingship and think about how that's you know, potentially problematic because kings aren't necessarily a good thing in the Bible. Having a king isn't necessarily a wise idea. And you see that particularly in 1 Samuel 8. Where prior to that, Israel had been led by prophets, they'd been led by judges, various different leaders of different kinds, but never by a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, all of the people come to Samuel the prophet and they say to him, you're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And... In response, then, God says to Samuel that, they're to list, that he's to listen to all that the people are saying to you, but it is not you they have rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. And so God is quite concerned about the fact that they've asked for a king, precisely because it's their way of saying that they want to be like everybody else. They want to have a king like all the other nations, and they're not happy with just having God as their king. And so the idea of having a king is deeply problematic. And so God says they've rejected me as their king. God was the one who ruled over them, and by rejecting him and asking for an earthly king, they're basically saying that God isn't good enough. And yet, we've got other passages of scripture that we've already mentioned. Genesis 48, Numbers, where Balaam prophesies of a coming king, where it's pretty clear that the Old Testament envisaged that actually there would be a king over God's people. And it's promised without any kind of sense that it's going to be a bad thing. And again, you see that played out not only in terms of directly what God says in terms of there being a king, but in the kind of narrative storyline of the Bible. So you look at a book like Judges, and you see this spiral of violence where everything gets progressively worse and worse. And the concluding thoughts of the author uh, is when he comes to the point and he says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And implicitly what he's saying is that the problem is that they didn't have a king to guide them in righteousness. And what they really needed then, if they were going to actually succeed as a people and be righteous and faithful to God, was a king who would guide them. So how do then we line up these different passages which talk about the problem of being a king with the idea of how necessary a king actually is? Well, I think, you know, the resolution is really in some ways quite simple, insofar as the fact that in First Samuel chapter 8, you've got to look at what they were trying to do. And what they were trying to do there is that they were saying that they wanted to be like all the other nations. They, they weren't happy with God ruling over them. They wanted to fit in. They didn't want to be different. And so it was then a rejection of God as their king, and that was why it was deeply problematic. And so the problem wasn't that they wanted a king as such. The problem was that they just wanted a, a king like everybody else. They wanted the wrong sort of a king. And then they got the wrong sort of a king. And the very first king of Israel, Saul, you remember how that ends up? In tragedy, where Saul dies in a battlefield forsaken by God, and they discover how bad it can actually get when they get what they want instead of what God has wanted for them. So what God proposes then in this promise made to David, is that he is going to give them a king who's not going to be like all of the other kings of the earth. 
Because he's going to give them a king that's not going to function as a kind of replacement for God, a, a king that's just going to try and do away with God. But he's going to give them a king who is going to accomplish God's will. He's going to be the king that God wants. And and that's going to be a king that's going to be modelled very much after David himself. Remember that David is the king after God's own heart. And that's how he is picked out by God. And he leads the people then in ways that are pleasing to God. And then that functions as a model for the coming king, who will be the king who leads the people in ways that are pleasing to God. And so then the coming king is the one who stands in David's line. He's going to be one of David's descendants. So then we've established then that that God promises a coming king who will be the kind of king that God wants. But then we've got to face the question, well, who is this coming king? Because it's not entirely clear at first glance. Because at first glance, when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and think about what it says there, we think, well, obviously, this must be referring to Solomon. You read through the rest of Samuel and Kings, and Solomon seems to fit the bill. Precisely because he is the one then who does build a house for God's name. He comes along and David gives him the guidance on how to build the temple and Solomon in wisdom builds the temple, this house for God's name. So does Solomon not fit the bill? Another reason why you might think that Solomon fits the bill best is because the covenant promises, says that when he does wrong, I will punish him. That's what God says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That clearly doesn't refer to the Lord Jesus. It seems to fit the bill better for Solomon. And certainly when you look across at 1 Kings chapter 11, you see what happens in Solomon's life when he starts to forsake God. And God does punish him and he raises up adversaries of various different kinds. And Solomon ends his days in a bit of a dilemma. Everything hasn't turned out too well and he is disciplined by God. But if we were to think that Solomon was the final fulfillment of this prophecy, then we'd be barking up the wrong tree again. Because, yes, it is true that Solomon is an initial fulfillment of this. But it's not true that Solomon exhausts this promise. Precisely because in verse 16 of Second Samuel 7, God says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So clearly God's thinking well beyond Solomon. And he's not just thinking that there's just going to be a continuous line of kings, because what we discover when we look through the book of Samuel, Kings, was originally one continuous book, you discover that it's a tale of woe whereby the kings get progressively worse over time until eventually God has to send them off into exile. And so they become fundamentally disobedient to God. And so Second Kings ends with us wondering, well, how is God going to fulfill this promise that he's made of a king that's going to last forever, a line that's going to last forever. And so we're left wondering at the end of Second Kings, who is this king going to be? We're waiting for the coming king. So who is the coming king? Well, we, we know we are Christians after all. We've got the New Testament. And in our series, we've been thinking about how Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. We know that this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus himself. And what I want to do then is just to show how the Lord Jesus does fulfill these promises. Because what happens in 2 Samuel 7 is that God makes this covenant and in a way he kind of sketches out what the coming king is going to look like. 
So he's giving people a template to look for the coming king so that when this king comes, they'll be able to look at him and say, yes, this is the son of David. This is the one who've been waiting for. And so that we too can look back and say, yes, this is the one that God promised. This is the one that fulfills all of God's promises. And so in this promise, we see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ sketched out for us, telling us who the coming king is going to be and what he's going to do. And the first thing I want to notice about this coming king uh, and what it says for us here in this passage is that this king has a very special relationship with God. Look for me in verse 14, for example, where God says about this king, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now that might seem to be quite an unusual thing to say. Why would God say that he's going to essentially adopt this king as his own son. This language of father and son might initially strike us as being a little bit strange. But actually, when you look at ancient Near Eastern covenants, they oftentimes had this kind of language used in them, where a great king would come along to a lesser king and would, so to speak, put his arm around this lesser king and say, well, I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to be the one who guarantees your safety. And I will be your father and you will be my son. You'll look up to me and I will care for you and protect you. And so the language of father and son is embedded in the kind of covenant language that was used in the ancient Near East at that time. And of course, it wasn't supposed to be understood literalistically, as if there was some kind of biological relationship. It was supposed to be understood as a covenant relationship. That is, the son was the one who was protected and cared for by the father. And so close was this connection between the covenant and the language of sonship, that in many ways you could say that when the, when the king was inaugurated, when his reign began, uh, when he began this relationship with this greater king, that was the point at which he became the son. This was the point at which he was adopted. And it's actually really important to understand this kind of context because this then gets played out in the rest of scripture in various different ways. Take, for example, Psalm 2, for example. The psalm is the one in which the Davidic king entrusts himself to God and believes that God is the one who will protect him and care for him precisely because of this special relationship that he has with God. And the kings of Israel, and the kings of Judah in particular, would have been able to take the words of Psalm 2 on their lips and say that they believed that God would be the one who would crush their enemies. How do they know this? Well, they refer back to the decree that God has made. And so the king says in defiance of his enemies in Psalm 2, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And so what gives the king hope and confidence that his enemies will be defeated is because he's been brought into a special relationship with this great covenant Lord, with the great king. And so the king would look back to the time when God had inaugurated him as king and say, well, that was the point when I became a son of the father. That was when the, the great Lord, the, the God of the covenant said to me, today I have become your father. And so on the basis of that kind of relationship, the king was able to then trust in God. So what's promised then to David is that his descendant would have this special relationship with God, which would be so close that it can only be described as sonship. 
It would be an intimate and caring relationship whereby God would pledge himself to be the father of this king, and this king would be his son. And this kind of relationship was one which was enjoyed by all of the kings that followed in David's line, but all of them were failures to a greater or lesser extent. That meant then that they were waiting for the one who would come who would be the true son. They were waiting for the one who would be the true son of God, who would fulfill all of God's promises perfectly, and who would actually demonstrate that he was in closest relationship with the Father. So many years pass until eventually a man steps forth from the Jordan River and the heavens open and a voice declares, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And when you hear those words and when the people heard those words, they could not have failed to think of Second Samuel 7, the promise that God made to this covenant king and the, the words there, I will be his father and he will be my son. Because this then is the one who ultimately fulfills the covenant promises to be the king who stands in close relationship to God. But here it's important to make a clarification because as we read on in the New Testament, we discover that the one who, who takes on this title of son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he's not merely called son because of his covenant relationship. But he's called son because by his very nature, he is the son. In other words, he is the true son of the father, standing in full equality with God, sharing in the very nature of God, who comes into the world. And by coming into the world and taking on human nature and entering into this into fulfilling this covenant promises, becomes the covenant son. And so the true son, the eternal son, in the incarnation becomes the covenant son. In the words of Second Samuel 7, he becomes the covenant king. And understanding that distinction then actually solves a lot of problems. Thinking about the eternal sonship of Christ and the covenant sonship of Christ. Because sometimes people get confused between the two and they conflate the two ideas. And then you get all kinds of strange ideas where sometimes people will say that actually the second person of the Trinity our Lord Jesus, only became the son at the incarnation or something along those lines. But that's, that's confusing the two different categories precisely because he is eternally the son and as the eternal son, he enters into the world and becomes the covenant king. He becomes the covenant son. And you can see an example of both kinds of language being used in various passages of scripture. And one passage of scripture that highlights it quite nicely is Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about the gospel that he preaches. And he says that the gospel that he preaches is concerning his son, concerning God's son, the eternal son, the one who stands in closest relationship to God. And then he says, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Uh, so you see that there's two different kinds of sonship being described here. The first kind of sonship is the eternal sonship. He is, this, this is the gospel concerning his son. And then he says that this son was appointed the son of God in power according to the resurrection from the dead. That is, in the resurrection, Jesus Christ takes the throne that God has prepared for him and enters into sonship in a new way, enters into the covenant kingship that is promised to David. 
So it's important to bear these two aspects of mind of the covenant, of the, the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what relevance does this has, have for us? The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the Son of God. Well, we learn from this that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who stands in closest relationship to the Father. And there exists between the Father and Son a relationship of closeness and intimacy and care. And because of that close relationship, we need to pay particular attention to the one who is the Son, precisely because of how highly the Father thinks of him. And so in Psalm 2, for example, after declaring the fact that he is the Son and that the Father has declared this, the psalmist says that we should kiss the Son lest he be angry. Uh, the idea is that we should show reverence and honor to the Son precisely because of the honor that the Father has bestowed upon him. And so we've got to submit ourselves then to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who stands in closest relationship to God, the one that the Father loves and the one that the Father honors. But it's not only a relationship of submission whereby, whereby we submit ourselves to him as our Lord, as our covenant king. Because the reign that the Lord Jesus Christ has begun isn't just for himself alone. That the reign that the Lord Jesus Christ has begun at the Father's right hand is a reign that he then shares with us. As the covenant king, as the one who fulfills the promises to David, he calls us to enter into his reign. And so in his word to the church at Laodicea, we've been thinking about the seven churches with Sid, um, the seven churches of Revelation, as Sid's gone through those, and eventually we'll come to Laodicea, and the promise there that the risen Lord Jesus Christ makes to the one who overcomes, he says, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to share that sonship, calls us to share in his reign. And that will be fulfilled ultimately in the day when he comes back to establish his reign over the earth and we will reign with him. And that's something to, to look forward to. But not only then is there this special relationship between the father and the son that's established here, this special relationship of the coming king that's described in Second Samuel 7, but there's a special task assigned to the king. What is the king going to accomplish? Well, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name. So we saw initially that this is fulfilled in Solomon. Solomon comes along and he builds the temple. That's the house for God's name. But ultimately, that temple gets destroyed. And the temple gets knocked to the ground and eventually after the exile they've got to come and rebuild it again. So what people are waiting for is ultimately another king who will come along who will ultimately build God's house that won't be destroyed. They waited for a king who would actually fulfill these promises fully and finally because as yet they hadn't been fulfilled. Now it's interesting that in the Gospel of John one of the very first things that the Lord Jesus Christ does, if you remember, is he goes into the temple and he starts clearing out the temple and getting rid of the money changers and those who are selling animals. And he says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. They're turning it into a den of thievery and robbery. And then in Second Samuel, or then in John 2 and verse 17, we read that his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the life of the Lord Jesus then is the one that fulfills these promises because what is it characterized? Well, it's characterized by zeal for God's house. 
That's what he wants to establish. He is the one who's going to ultimately build a house for God's name. And this is a zeal that would ultimately lead the Lord Jesus Christ to death itself, as his zeal led him to lay down his life so that a house would be built for God's name. And that's why then, when questioned about what he did, the Lord Jesus said, well, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said to him, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple, says John, he spoke of was his body. So the Lord Jesus was seeking to establish a house for God to be worshipped in. But so interesting, isn't it? He sees his body as the place where that house is established, that his body becomes the temple that is ultimately the place where we come to worship God. But how does this happen? Well, you've got to think about, well, what is the idea of the temple? The idea of the temple is the place where God and man meet together. That's the idea. God and sinful human beings meet together at the temple, sacrifices are made, and this becomes the place where they can have communion with each other, where they can meet with each other, where they can know a holy God without fear. That's the idea of the temple. And what the Lord Jesus Christ does then is he replaces the temple at Jerusalem. No longer do people need to go to a physical building where they offer sacrifices and commune with God in a physical place. But the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, becomes the place where God and sinful man can meet together, where the sacrifice is made, the blood is shed, and where God asks no more where God meets with us on that ground and communes with us and delights to meet with us. And that's what the zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. Zeal for God's house led him to take on human flesh and to go to the cross and be raised for us so that he would be the house where God and man can meet together. And that tells us that this king that's promised in 2 Samuel 7 is one who's zealous for the worship of God. He is so keen that people that come to know the one true God, that it can be said of him, zeal for your house will consume me. And the zeal for the Lord's house so consumes the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've said, that it led to his own suffering and death. And so for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing that he loves more, there's nothing that he wants more than for sinful human beings to meet with a holy God. Not in fear, not in trepidation. There's nothing he wants more. There's nothing that consumed his earthly ministry more than the desire to see people meet with God. And in his person, in his incarnation, uh, in that body that he still bears, um, and through his death on the cross, he is the one through him, we encounter the living God and we discover the depths of love that that God has for us in a so establishing a way that we can actually meet with him. So we see then that God is promising a king. He's going to have a special relationship. He's going to be a son. And he's going to have a special task. He's going to establish the worship of God through building up God's house. But lastly, and we've already alluded to this, the key fact about this king is that he's the one who has a reign that lasts forever, a special duration of this kingship. Second Samuel 7 verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So his reign is one that never ends. 
And this is really important because you see the prevailing doubt that runs through the books of Samuel King's Chronicles. Because again and again, there were good kings. But after the good king, you didn't know what was going to come next. You didn't know whether it was going to be another good king or whether it was going to be somebody that was just going to be absolutely terrible. And a lot of the times it it was somebody that was terrible until eventually it leads up to the exile. And so you're faced with this pattern of uncertainty as as to what the next king is going to be like. And the promise then that's made to David can only ever be fully fulfilled in one who's not going to be succeeded by another king. Otherwise you're just left in an endless cycle of wondering where it's going to end. It has to end somewhere, and it ends with Jesus Christ. He's the one that reigns forever and breaks the cycle of sin and failure. And that's the kind of king that we have. And so Paul stood up amongst his Jewish companions in Acts chapter 13 and preaches this message. He says, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. And quotes from the Old Testament and says, As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And so what Paul sees very clearly is all of the promises that were made to David are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ takes on an everlasting reign that cannot be defeated by death or decay and that lasts forever. And because of that then, the New Testament is filled with hope and certainty and the writer of Hebrews can say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And it means then that there's never going to be a day when we wake up and we wonder what what the next king's going to be like. We never have to wonder, is there going to be somebody that's going to succeed the Lord Jesus? You know, you get that in churches sometimes. Sometimes there's a good leader or there's a, there's a good preacher. In it, and then we wonder who's going to come next. And sometimes it can be absolute, something absolutely awful. Not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he reigns forever. And he never changes. And you know what it's like for us? Sometimes we wake up on the wrong side of the bed and sometimes we wake up grumpy, sometimes we wake up happy and it's the same for all the different people that we actually meet in the world, but never with the Lord Jesus Christ. Never do we have to wake up and wonder, what does he feel towards me today? Because there is never a point where where he cares for you any less, where he could care for you any less. And every day brings new mercies from our covenant king. And that's why then we delight that the Lord Jesus fulfills these promises to David, who becomes a king forever after the power of an endless life. So then Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills these promises that are made to David in this Davidic covenant. He's the one who's reigning in David's throne, fulfilling the promises to be God's covenant son, to build God's house, and to establish his everlasting reign. And I realize that what I've done in looking through these verses is just skimming very lightly over the wonderful promises that are made here and how they're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've just skimmed the surface. And yet it's really vital to understand it because here is a crucial stepping stone in the history of redemption whereby God intervenes and in sovereign grace comes to David and says, I'm going to establish an everlasting king through your line. It's an expansion of the promise that began in Genesis 3, a promise to bring about the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. And we wonder, how is that going to happen? Then we see Abraham. We say, well, it's going to be one from Abraham's line. Then we come to David and we see it's going to be one through David's line. He's going to be the king that crushes the serpent's head. And down through redemptive history, 
the people of God were always wondering, well, who's this king going to be? And they looked at kings and sometimes wondered, well, maybe this is going to be the one. And then it all landed in failure of one kind of uh, one kind or another. And no one was able to fill the shoes that are described in Second Samuel chapter 7 until one day God in joy could announce, this is my son whom I love. This is my beloved son. And that was the point where all of God's promises came to fulfillment. God was delighted when he was able to do that. And we could never begin to measure the joy that God felt in declaring him to be the son who fulfilled these promises. We cannot measure the joy that God feels in exalting his son to the highest place in heaven, the throne of the universe, so that he gets what he deserves, having accomplished redemption and having accomplished all that God called him to do. God is so delighted to be able to give him that highest place of honor because here at last is the king after God's own heart. Here at last, God's reign has been established through his appointed son. And here at last, God's zeal to have a people who would know him and worship him is met by one whose zeal is equaled by his desire to bring many sons to glory so that we would come to know God through himself. So let's um, conclude by a word of prayer and give thanks to God for this grace. Gracious Father, we thank you that in these promises we see how you chose to give us the Lord Jesus Christ to be the 